You're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. Also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim and welcome to another episode of Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and you can follow us on Facebook at MWM Radio. You can also use the hashtag Be A Voice and MWM Radio and we will find you. And what I have today is a treat because we found one of our favorite guests for a follow-up. So if you remember a few months ago, we had a conversation with Dr. Lubna Powell about PCOS and how women can, are diagnosed and treated. So I was able to recently catch up with Dr. Powell in her office and to give us a couple of more um, questions as to what is... PCOS treatment and some of the new ways in which women can naturally um, manage the symptoms as well as how they can um, how they can go about looking at their fertility once they're diagnosed. So you may have remember a few months ago, Dr. Powell came on the show and she gave us a little background and technical at the beginning as to what exactly is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Dr. Powell specializes in research on polycystic ovarian syndrome and fertility. She is actually the, uh, serves as the director of reproductive aging and bone health program at the Yale Reproductive Endocrinology, Endocrinology and specializes in the area of infertility, reproductive aging, and menopause as well as reproductive endocrinology. She has a special interest in um, polycystic ovarian syndrome and other reproductive disturbances that is attributed to the hypothalamic and pituitary disorders and obesity-related reproductive dysfunction, reproductive aging, and issues of menopause. So that is a mouthful, but that is going to give you a little bit of a precursor of the amount of information and education that we learned from Dr. Powell. So without further ado, here's my follow-up interview with Dr. Powell that I had uh, this previous week. (laughs) Thank you for uh, letting me interview you again because um, my privilege. (laughs) It's always a pleasure and I learn so much every time that I get a chance to talk to you. I do too. So thank (laughs) you for that. (laughs) Awesome. So, um, so in con- when we last interviewed um, and we were talking about PCOS, you were you made it very emphatically clear that PCOS is not a disease; it is a collection of symptoms. And so the question that w- lingered in my mind after that conversation was: So can somebody you say they used to have PCOS as opposed to have it? Is there a quote unquote cure? Is there a Oh gosh, Mabarka, this is a tough question. You know, there are people who go to a doctor's office and they get their blood pressure checked as a part of routine care and their blood pressure is a bit elevated. And the patient says, oh, you know, every time I go to the doctor's office, my blood pressure is a little bit elevated. 
this is normal. My doc says it's all okay. I'm not hypertensive. This is what hap this is what happens. And then fast forward that person who's overweight to obese loses 20 pounds or something and next time goes to the doctor's office blood pressure is completely normal. Now did she have hypertension a label was that phenomena which was elevated blood pressure that we saw was that a transient thing that was related to so much else that was happening? And when her health improved, that label got was shed. So nobody labeled her as hypertensive for life. PCOS is a collection of symptoms. Menstrual irregularity is the commonest symptom. Psychological stress, excessive weight gain, excessive weight loss, these all impact on our menstrual cyclicity. So, one of your commonest symptoms that earns you the label, there are other factors that improve and my mechanism improves, right? You shed that off. Obesity itself is, can lead to an imbalance of female to male hormones and you meet criteria for PCOS. What are the criteria? Irregular periods, elevated testosterone or acne or hair growth. Fast forward life changes, you, your cycles get better, you get pregnant without assistance, yes your acne is better, it's not completely gone, but do you have PCOS? No, but you live with that label that somebody had labeled slapped on you for life. Mm. So I think PCOS needs to be understood not for, oh do I have it or not, but what's my bother, what's happening to me? What do I need to do to address my health? <laughs> so my, my understanding and my commitment to this concept really is, let's not get locked in terms and labels. Uh, it's, we have, uh, when I was a trainee, it was so common for a young woman to, who presented for a gynecological exam for pelvic pain doctor examined the patient and she had pelvic tenderness. Now whether she was ovulating and her ovaries were a little bit uh, tender, clinical exam labeled somebody as having, oh you have pelvic inflammatory disease. Mm. The PID went into the chart mm. and then that woman carried that label all her life. Mm. Right. So these are, we need to be very cautious in terms of what does it mean. Um, so when you say what's what's the bother? So would you um, would you so it seems like you're suggesting that instead of focusing on I have this label, figure out what's what problem? symptoms are right. and maybe focus on focus, one yes. or two lifestyle changes that's going to take exactly, that symptom away. Exactly. Okay. All so right. because the goal, what is the goal? The goal is how can I make you feel better. Mm. Right? I mean, the goal is about quality of life. The goal is about risk reduction. Mm. Right? So if I have irregular periods, infrequent periods, all my life, I am more at risk not just for fertility problems because period that is regular suggests I'm ovulating, I'm releasing an egg in a timely fashion, which is a critical player in this game of fertility. Right? So if I have irregular periods, yes, I may have problems conceiving. That's, but I'm not ready for conception yet, so hey, I don't care. Right? right? But what else am I at risk for? Right. I'm at risk for precancerous changes of the lining of my uterus, particularly if I'm overweight to obese. Mm. Right? 
So that's my health concern. So what's my bother? My bother is infrequent periods. Mm. What does my doctor and I need to do is identify strategies that can improve my menstrual cyclicity for my health. I'm not seeking fertility yet, but that's something so many young girls I see, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, being brought by their families to say that she's been diagnosed with PCOS. And in the discussion, one of the things that young girl is worried about is, will I not be able to have children in my life? Mm. I mean, because, you know, so PCOS is a wrong label. It's a wrong name. Mm. It's not that the ovaries are full of cysts. Some girls are petrified that my I have so many cysts in my ovaries. You know, they're thinking that their ovaries are going to burst. <laughs> it's not. It's just that they, young women, have loads of eggs in their ovaries, and those eggs are contained in structure called follicles. When you do an ultrasound, that follicle appears as a black fluid-filled area, which in a simple layperson's term is a cyst. But the cysts of PCOS are tiny. They are physiological. It's like a parking lot. Eggs are sitting there, they're just not driving out. Okay. (laughs) That's a good vision. Whereas in a regularly cycling woman, she's those follicles are growing, you know, every month you're losing some as new ones develop Mm. in PCOS and ovulatory or women with irregular infrequent periods many of these follicles are just sitting Mm. so when you do an ultrasound scan you see these tiny loads of follicles that the patient perceives I have cysts Mm -hmm. so there is a stressor added to this label in of itself so let's not talk about labels let's talk about what's the problem it's not what you have blood pressure high blood pressure I just don't say oh you have hypertension you know deal with it uh, I say, all right, why do you have hypertension? Is it your kidney? <laughs> That's the pro- problem. Is it your adrenal gland? I need to look at why you are having the problem that you're having. Mm-hmm. And I need to choose the pill for you that is the right treatment for your problem. Mm-hmm. So PCOS, just saying you have PCOS is not doing justice to the patient. Mm-hmm. It's really saying, what's your problem? Let me make sure I'm not missing any reason for your problem. And let me choose the right tool that addresses your problem and minimizes the risks related to this condition. One of the, the more common thing for PCOS is what fertility. And I know that you've done a lot of research and you work on that a lot. What, are, what, is, um, what would be your response to someone that is having a fertility problem with PCOS? Is it... So there's a couple of things around fertility. I've heard kind of like, you're making it more stressful by worrying about it, so just don't worry about it. And then the women are like, but I only have a certain amount of time. So so is that really a a I think women need to be aware of their basic biology, basic concepts of biology. You don't need to have taken biology lessons to know this. There's certain basic concepts. And one of the basic concepts is, menstruation is like pulse it's a vital sign if I'm having regular cycles which is every 28 days every 25 days every 30 whatever that number is between 21 to 35 is the norm average 28 days is a more of a myth 
very few people have smacked 28 day cycles. Okay. Most of them have in that range, but it's predictable for a woman. Every woman tends plus minus two days is an okay norm. What's the norm for the length of period? Five days is is okay. It's beyond seven days of bleeding becomes a little bit too much. Okay. Women who have prolonged bleeding, they may be bleeding every 28 days, but I bleed for 10 days. That's too long. Uh -huh. It sort of suggests maybe some hormonal imbalance. Suggests maybe there is something, you know, women with fibroids, women with polyps, issues related to the uterus, sometimes bleed more, bleed longer. Mm. So they can be hormonal imbalance as a mechanism for prolonged bleeding. Mm. So knowing what is normal is important. So if I am the woman who is having a period every three months and I'm thinking fertility, I need to have that discussion with my doctor because if I'm releasing an egg every three months, it's already reducing my chance of getting pregnant, right? Yeah. Uh, it's gonna, I'll ovulate four times a year. <laughs> so infertility for women under 35 is said to happen when somebody's been trying to get pregnant month after month after month for 12 months. So if I'm not getting a period every month, I should preempt this and say, let me, you know what, I'm thinking fertility, let me go and have this discussion with my doctor. I think it's naive to, to dismiss the menses and say, I want to keep trying because every time I try, I'm stressing out, I'm getting anxious, I'm getting depressed, and I'm not helping the system <laughs> by any means. So knowing your biology is very important. A woman who has irregular cycles should be talking about fertility even before she has start decided I want to attempt. I'm thinking, you know, by age this much, I'm gonna try. Or if I am with a partner, we are initiating a dialogue about fertility. I'm on a birth control pill, but I had a history of irregular periods. Mm. That's, so I should preempt and initiate the dialogue, mm. right? Because, and then I start the pill, and in three months I find that I get one period. I'm probably going back to where I was before. So. Mm. It's not about do I have PCOS or not, it's about I have ovulatory dysfunction. Mm, okay. My goal is fertility. Let me go and seek assistance. And for PCOS, now women with PCOS can have blocked tubes, they can have a partner with no sperm, you know, they can have other causes of infertility. Right. But ovulation dysfunction is common in this population and it's correctable. So rather than stress, and if you are overweight to obese, weight loss can make a huge difference. Mm. Exercise, actually healthier weight loss, you know, eating right, movement, weight loss through combination of caloric expenditure and caloric restriction. Has um, there been any research around, speaking of, kind of weight loss and, 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 and calories, has there been any research around the types of diets that are most beneficial for women with PCOS? So, again, this recognizing two-thirds of the PCOS population is overweight to obese. Even the lean population with PCOS is much more likely to have some, this thing called insulin resistance. I am needing to make too much insulin to keep my sugars under control. Why am I doing that? Maybe my choice, I am more carb heavy in my diet. Mm. When I'm choosing the carbs, maybe I'm reaching out for more simple carbs, mm. right? So the better diet for the PCOS population is really a diet which improves your insulin signaling, mm. which is 
which has more complex carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. So the concept really, lots of studies have been done in terms, and the bottom line is no one diet is better than the other. You eat small, you eat frequent, you choose the right things with high fiber, less simple carbs. Um, and the goal is, if you're overweight to obese, you lose weight. Okay. <laughs> um, so there are lots of books that have been written. Many people have created careers in terms of this diet versus that diet. Mm. But the bottom line really is you have to look at your profile. Mm. And insulin resistance is prevalent in women with PCOS. Okay, so a diet that, that, that prevents the insulin resistance. One of the things that I have found that is helpful for most of my clients who have PCOS is really limiting carbs to below 40% actually has been really mm -hmm. helpful. And um, obviously in making those carbs, complex carbs and all that right. good stuff. Um, and then having a strategy that you can sustain. Mm -hmm. Many people can achieve short-term drops. That's true. But they can't sustain a diet which is not palatable for them. Right, so you've got to keep in consideration that ethnic, cultural, dietary preferences need to be understood. Absolutely. Because you have to use those diets so you can sustain yourself. Yes, I, I you know, it's funny because I, when uh, people ask me what type of diet they should, um, they should follow, I said, whatever you're doing, close your eyes and imagine yourself at 90. Are you <laughs> yes, going to be yes. doing that? Right. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if you're counting points, can, yeah. are you going to count points at 90? Right. right. And then if you see yourself doing it at that age, yeah. then hey, that's right. for you. If you right. can't, then it's probably not right. for you. So, now, I am no totally dietitian. Agree. I'm no nutritionist. That's not my area of expertise. But I really have seen tremendous successes with the concept of eat small, eat frequent, eat right, don't wait till you're hungry when you eat, mm. preempt and move. Mm. Yeah. You know? And in terms of insulin movement is movement. absolutely yeah. crucial, right. for sure, right. for sure. We talked a little bit before also about um, some supplements that call or um, and herbs that that has shown promise for balancing insulin. You you mentioned cinnamon. You mentioned so cinnamon, just cinnamon powder, not cinnamon. Cinnamon, <laughs> right? That's important. <laughs> Darn, no cinnamon. <laughs> cinnamon has been shown in some studies um, to improve insulin sensitivity. Uh, Myo-inositol. Um, they, there was initially a promise with D-chiro-inositol, but that did not pan out. So it's really the myo-inositol component. So explain to, explain um, to me what myo-inositol is. So it's a, it's a plant-based supplement. It's a natural product, and it's a product which now is available as a supplement, as a powder or granules. Um, Again, why do humans need to depend on these supplements? Really, I mean, if at the end of the day, do you need to go and do these things, or can you work with what you have? What does it do? Um, what is my So this is again, it's a it's a molecule just like cinnamon. It's at the level of insulin signaling at the receptor. Okay. So these patients, like type two diabetics, they have a lot of insulin circulating in their body. Right. It's. I mean, I explain to the patients in a simplistic manner that. If there is a door that is separating two people and we spend the whole day in our respective rooms and I go every few minutes and knock on the door 
initially the person on the other side will open the door and say yeah if there's anything you need but I just keep doing that and I keep knocking hard and at some point the other person becomes deaf to my knocks because really I'm overwhelming the other side with this bombardment on this one doorway that, uh, that is a connection. Insulin works through these doorways called insulin receptors. Okay. When you have a fine balance in health, that there's a little bit insulin that comes on board when you eat something sugary, so body is preparing itself to keep a, put a break so that your blood sugars don't go too high. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and your insulin kicks in, your doorway opens, sugar is shunted, doorway closes, and your body stops making that excess insulin because there's no need. Insulin resistance is a phenomena where your body is continuing to make too much insulin because of what you're consuming. Right. right? Now, stress itself is a state of insulin resistance. The stress hormones that are released, you know, body, mm. what happens? In a simple, again, in a in a layperson's concept, you your body in a fight or flight mode when you are stressed, whether it's physical stress or psychological stress, you're pouring hormones like cortisol to, which is an emergency situation. Mm -hmm. Your body is now instead of metabolizing things, your body is going into a hibernation mode. You know what? Save on to this because it'll be needed to for survival. Mm. So your insulin signaling dials down. Mm. So your state of insulin resistance. So the door kind of like gets stuck. In it's your stuck. It's open, and the others like, don't right. open it. Don't, don't open, open it. it. Right. Okay. All right. So you're coming. I like this door concept. <laughs> I'm thinking of all kind of like metaphors with this door. So it's almost like saying it's not. I am not a diabetic because I lack insulin. Mm -hmm. It's a type one diabetic. Okay. I am a pre-diabetic. I've got all this cash. I just you know it's like being in one country. Uh, hell. So it's going to Europe with lots of dollars. The key is here right now, you can use dollars in Europe. You don't have to use euros, mm. right? But imagine you are in a completely different, maybe you're in Vietnam, mm. right? Beauty is your US dollar still works everywhere. But if you're from another part of the world, you may have loads of currency of one part, mm. which just can't buy you a glass of water. Right. It's sort of kind of like in other countries, you can't come here and use the euro. They're right. So like even just, when I go to Jamaica, do, they take American dollars, but I can't bring you a can't, Jamaican dollar yeah. to America. So you got right? so the cash that you are having, which is your insulin, is just not get, exactly. getting you where right. you need to go. Okay. Right. That's insulin resistance. Right. Now, how and myonesetol works like so myonesetol works at the level of that doorway okay. to improve that signaling process. Okay. Cinnamon works also at that level exercise works like that mm -hmm. right exercise yeah. and dialing down your carbs so your body does not need to go on over time right. to be pouring Isn't banging pumping. so much on it's that not door. banging so much so <laughs> simple Excellent. strategies now why do obese overweight pre-diabetic insulin resistant people as they age they become diabetic because their body's ability to keep up with this need the, your pancreas is working over time the cells that are making insulin are working overtime with no reward. Mm. And then they get exhausted. Mm. And when they get exhausted, people become diabetic. Mm, okay, okay. Now, in your research um, with uh, vitamin D and women, did you specifically um, look at fertility or PCOS? 
So my studies of vitamin D have been in women with PCOS and these are diagnosed with elevated testosterone or androgen levels, irregular periods. For my first study of vitamin D, mean BMI was 38. These are obese women. Um, and in that population, we showed improvement in blood pressure. Just and the, So obesity is a state of vitamin D deficiency. Oh, really? Yeah. So vitamin D is fat-soluble. Mm -hmm. The more percent body fat you have, the less circulating levels you have. Mm. So obese people have... So even if you don't have PCOS, obesity is a, is oh, a yes. state of oh, having yes. low vitamin D. Yes. So, and this is an interesting, so lots of small sample studies had been done suggesting that women with PCOS may be more likely to be D deficient. But then ours was the largest sample and there is an ongoing study which will be much larger than what we looked at. We looked at 540 women with PCOS who had participated in a clinical trial before. We looked at their D levels and compared it to the national levels that are described for women who participated in the NHANES is a population-based study. It's an ongoing um, population data accrual, if you will. So women with PCOS are no more likely than the average weight comparable woman in the community to be D deficient. It's the mm. weight that drives, and because women with PCOS are more likely to be overweight to obese compared to general population, mm. that sort of gets skewed. Oh, okay, yeah. so it's not a, a, yeah. an additional. But D supplementation, improving vitamin D status, has been suggested by many to improve metabolic parameters, to improve insulin signaling. We did not see improved insulin signaling in our population. Others have suggested that it may, but again, it's not a magic pill. Mm. It's not that, oh, I'm not gonna change anything, but I'll just chug vitamin D. Mm. It right, doesn't right, right. work like that. It has to go hand yeah. in hand. And what's the recommended levels for vitamin D? So. Norms of vitamin D by the Institute of Medicine is D levels should be greater than 20 to zero nanograms per ml. That 20 was defined based on vitamin D's implication for bone health, for the skeleton. So that's like for minimum. general health, at least 33 zero mm. nanograms per ml. For fertility seeking women, we aspire to get their levels into near 4040 range because some data really I'm biased my own study that seemed to suggest levels in the 40 to 5040 to 50 range may be better mm. in terms of improving implantation attachment at the level of the uterus or ovulation mm. so do no harm potential for benefit is the paradigm we have to work with so at level of 40 to 50, there is no harm, mm. and there's potential for benefit. Okay. I'm so sorry. No Hello? Yeah, five minutes. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> that was yeah. our time. <laughs> yeah. um, what, and um, is there such thing as having too much vitamin D? Yes, like yes. Vitamin D toxicity is well described. Naturally, vitamin people naturally from sun exposure, from eating flubber, from eating, you know, fatty fish, you can't 
intoxicate on vitamin D. So vitamin D intoxication is a state where people are overzealous in their supplementation. So if 1,000 was good and 2,000 is better, maybe 10,000 a day would be even better. So there are populations. Now we know that dose for dose, if I give you the same dose and I give another person who is 20 pounds heavier than you the same dose, the the amount of rise in your circulating D level will be higher compared to the heavier person. amount of consumption needs to be done in a cautious manner. There should be some common sense involved and there should be some uh, supervision involved. So what's the, what is the, the um, safe amount for so the So for person? the recommendation for an average person is 800, so the recommended daily allowance by Institute of Medicine, what they follow is 600 international units per day um, for reproductive age women and for young men, 600, 600 it's a nothing. And 800 international units to 1,000 international units for menopausal women. So these population recommendations don't take into account that almost 60% of your population has D levels less than 30, mm. right? So when you are deficient, when you have very li- when you have a hole in your bucket and you're trickling 600 it's never going to bring you to a norm mm. but once you are norm mm-hmm. then you can maintain yourself with that mm. right so the, again the concept is that what is the is the dose i'm using am i using it for supplementation am i using it for repletion if i am deficient i need a higher dose to tank me okay. once i'm tanked up i can maintain myself okay. many people they take prescription strength vitamin D, they bring their levels into the 30s, and then think, oh, I'm okay now. And then they stop, and it takes about three months, and you're back to square one. Oh. So in my clinical practice, if you, know, if you, as a patient, if you're a person, you have a primary provider, you can have a dialogue. I think there are at-risk populations that we need to recognize. So darker skin is a risk for vitamin D deficiency. Mm. Obesity is a risk for vitamin D deficiency. I mean, these are uh, having food allergies, having celiac disease, irritable bowel. I mean, all these are factors that Mm. contribute. Lactose intolerance, that's a risk for vitamin D deficiency. So you need to start the dialogue, maybe get a level tested, Mm -hmm. at least so you know what are you working with. Mm -hmm. Having said that, if we set aside the recommended daily allowance, again, remember population guidelines come from institutions where there is caution. They don't want to do harm. They don't want people to go over zealous, so they lowball. Right. right. In clinical practice, I personally have plenty of data to say um, 2,000 international units a day for anybody living in North America, you will not overdose yourself. Mm. Wow. wow. Yeah, and there's an over-the-counter D3. Mm. So I know we only have a few more minutes, and one of the questions that um, um, that I was asked to ask you is particularly around fertility Mm -hmm. and at what point do women with PCOS should they seek alternative methods of fertility like in vitro and stuff like is there a timeline is there things that they should or should not it's not a time so if the question is so look fertility is a team play 
there are two partners and there's a playing field. Absolutely. Right? So a woman who has PCOS should not just assume that the fertility is because of her not playing right. Mm -hmm. It's a team problem mm. and the team needs to be evaluated. Mm. Right? So step one of that process, I start thinking fertility and my periods are irregular, my ovulation is erratic. And that I don't need to wait a year to try and figure out. I should pursue that sooner. Right? When you pursue that sooner, you you know, common things are we need to make sure your thyroid is okay, your prolactin levels are okay. There's no other mechanism contributing to your infertility. We want to make sure your partner has sperm. We want to make sure your tubes are okay. Now, you can jump within a month and say, oh, I know my periods are irregular. Let me get my tubes tested. But we don't have to approach the entire fertility on all fronts at the same time. Mm. Right, but we need at least a history taking. So a young woman who has had multiple, more than two partners in a lifetime is at risk for potential exposure to sexually transmitted infections at some stage of her life. Mm. She's at risk for her tubes being damaged. Mm. Maybe, and if she's thinking fertility, so a woman who has had HPV infection, abnormal pap smears, sexually transmitted known infections. This is where women should be aware that it has implications for fertility. I may have PCOS, but I want to get the process of evaluation going forward, mm -hmm. as opposed to another woman who had you know, single partner all her life, no risk of infections, no history of infections. Her issue is irregular cycles. Maybe her partner fathered a child in another relationship or fathered a pregnancy, so you know there is some sperm on board. Mm -hmm. For that woman, we don't need to be testing right, left, and center, we can start by testing her. Mm. Say we've tested, and we can tweak her ovulation, and there are, if she loses weight, she may tweak ovulation herself. Mm. If lifestyle is the first line approach for a young person. Mm. Uh, say we have identified her tubes are open, partner is okay, and the problem lies with her ovulation. So first line approach, if there is room to lose weight, it really can make a difference. One to three months of effort can go a long way in improving ovulation. Mm. So first line management is how can I help you ovulate in a timely manner? There are many simple strategies available. Myoinositol comes under the name of Pregnitude, does help. Vitamin D optimization improves with ovulation process. There's a medication called metformin or glucophage. If I have time on my side that I have a woman who's working towards losing weight, is insulin resistant. I, my clinical practice, I prefer to use insulin sensitizing agents to help facilitate that goal. And if in three months time, her ovulatory, pro, ovulatory process has not improved, then add an agent, something mm -hmm. like, so Clomid was a commonly used medicine. It's a very, you know, probably one of the oldest of fertility meds available. Um, but studies have now shown that women with PCOS, there is another class of agents called, let, uh, called aromatase inhibitors. Letrozole is a common agent that works better for women with uh, PCOS. Mm. So we recommend at least three cycles of ovulation induction with these agents. Mm. Now, a woman who has PCOS, who is ovulating, and we can make her release an egg, or she gets spontaneous periods after a failed cycle of fertility treatment, chances are she ovulated fine. So if we give, give her three to a max four attempts at ovulation, 
and she's still not getting pregnant and her tubes are okay and his sperm are fine, then you have to step back and say, there's something else going on. Mm. That's a patient who, if she can afford in vitro fertilization, she may be better off with in vitro fertilization mm. because we can really get a sense of how are my eggs doing when they are put with the sperm? What kind of embryo am I making? And more importantly even, by putting a single embryo in the uterus of that woman, we near eliminate the risk of multiple pregnancy. These girls have so many eggs in their ovaries which have not seen the tap of a gas pedal. <laughs> the moment we start treating them with injectable fertility hormones, their ovaries can start developing five, six, seven, eight follicles. Mm. So IVF, we take those eggs, we create an embryo, and we have the control over how many we put back. If she ch chooses to go fertility treatment with injectable hormones, she can release six, seven eggs in her body and land up with pentuplets, you know? Right. <laughs> these are risks, these are real high. Auto multiple pregnancy is a big risk in this population. Mm. So don't jump to IVF. Now, if your tubes are blocked, you need IVF. If your partner has no sperm or very low sperm, IVF may be the best route. Mm. But otherwise, it's a cautious approach with very high successes. Mm. So they need to believe that it's not doom and gloom, but it's a stepwise approach. And weight reduction goes a long way in reducing risks. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, I hope I, really, I hope. Yeah. I want to thank Dr. Powell for another educational and insightful interview. I always find it such a fascinating thing to talk to researchers who are on the cutting edge of getting information and understanding what our physical bodies are going through, whether it be something that we can enhance our current healthy lives with or we can help treat whatever bother we may have, as Dr. Powell said. So I want to thank you for listening. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, also streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I want to remind you that we want to be your voice and talk about things that are relevant to your life. So send us an email or a tweet or hit us up on Facebook at MWM Radio. You can find us on all of those social media uh, with that, with those uh, tags, or you can just hashtag it and we'll find you. Uh, give us a, a suggestion for show guests that you'd like to hear us interview or topic you'd like to see me cover. Um, I want to thank you again, and I would like to leave you this week, as I always do, reminding you to be a voice and not an echo.